for the director of music to the tune of the David of the Son, a Psalm of David. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause. You have sat on your throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken the enemy. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. O Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion, and there rejoice in your salvation. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the works of their hands. The wicked return to the grave, all the nations that forget God. But the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted ever perish. Arise, O Lord, let not man triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. Psalm 9. This summer we are taking a look through, uh, taking a look at the Christian life through the lens of the Psalms in a series we've entitled "Walking with God in the Meantime." And if you are just joining us this uh, this Sunday in the series, we want to welcome you and invite everyone to find your way in your Bible, either the Bible in the rack in front of you, Bible you might have brought with you. Find your way to Psalm chapter nine, which is where we're going to spend our time this morning. And as you make your way there, let's say a word of prayer together. Lord, thank you that Christ is our solid rock. What, what relief, what joy, what gratefulness we have at that fact. Especially, Lord, as we consider uh, your justice this morning. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your word from the Psalms. Give us eyes to see you for who you truly are. And give us hearts that rejoice at the sight and that are eager to be changed by you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 9 deals with what we've entitled the justice of God and the gratitude of his people. But as you're finding your way in your Bibles, some of you might notice that there's a little footnote uh, right at the beginning of the chapter in Psalm 9. And you kind of look down there, and we find out that 
most likely Psalms 9 and 10 were at one point a single psalm when they were originally written. And there are a couple of reasons why people think this. Um, first, the Greek, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament treats these two chapters as one chapter in its translation. And so this has been something people thought for some time. Second, and probably more convincing, is that together these two psalms, 9 and 10, form what's called an acrostic poem. Now, if you are working with kids downstairs, you probably know what an acrostic is, but for the rest of us, it's a poem where each line uh, begins with a different letter, a successive letter in the alphabet. So, for instance, if we were to write an acrostic in English about fruit, it might go something like, apples are sweet and tasty, bananas are oh so much a delight, cranberries grow in bogs in New England, and so on, and I don't know any fruits that start with D, but you get the point, A, B, C, and so on. So this psalm, chapter 9, begins that process, and then chapter 10 completes it with the second part of the alphabet. So most likely, they were originally one psalm, and together they share a common theme, the justice of God, and more specifically, the fact that we can trust God to deal justly with evil in the world. We can trust God to deal justly with evil in this world. Listen to the language of justice as it piles up here. So in verse 4, God upholds my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. Verse 7, he has established his throne for justice or for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness. He judges the people with equity. Hear the language of justice. Verse 8. Oh, that was verse 8. Verse 16, he makes himself known by his acts of justice. And verse 19, he is called upon to judge the nations of the earth. So you hear this language of justice, and it carries on into chapter 10, where chapter 10 is calling on God to deal justly with the wicked. As verse 15 puts it, to call the evildoer to account for his wickedness and also to defend the fatherless and the oppressed, in verse 18. So the prevailing theme of Psalms 9 and 10 is that we can trust God to deal justly with evil in the world. He is a God of justice. He does what is right, and he makes right what is wrong. That's justice in the Bible. He does what is right, and he makes right what is wrong. Now, these two psalms do offer unique reflections on the subject of God's justice, so we will actually treat them in two separate weeks. We'll look at Psalm 9 this morning. We'll look at chapter 10 next week. And what Psalm 9 emphasizes for us here is the heart of gratitude and praise that God's people should have in response to God's justice, including his judgment on evil. That's how the psalm begins in verses 1 through 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. Verse 11 calls everybody to join in. Sing praises to the Lord enthroned in Zion. Why? Why are we so grateful for God? Because we can trust him to deal justly with evil in this world. That's what the rest of the psalm unfolds and anchors our gratitude in. And yet, the subject of God's justice, including his judgment here, 
raises all sorts of different emotions for people. And not all of them are positive. In fact, gratitude may be a little bit lower down on the list as far as an emotional response when the subject of God's justice comes up. There's a pervading tendency today to dismiss God's justice as unnecessary. So to think that the world is not so wicked as to warrant some divine reaction, some divine consequence. Things aren't that bad, at least not so bad that we can't handle them here. And so to bring God and his justice into the picture is just overkill. You know, it's, it's unnecessary. And so instead of gratitude, there's an indifference to God's justice. It's, it's just we can dismiss it as unnecessary. It's a common response. An equally pervasive temptation is to actually denigrate God's justice as unloving. You know, every Christian who is honest enough to admit it has wrestled at one point in their life, or maybe many points in their life, with the question, how can a loving God judge people and send them to hell? It's an honest question. It's a good question. It's okay to ask questions like that. You don't have to be afraid to be honest with questions. You don't have to be afraid to be honest with struggles and different things like that. That's not how the grace of God works. And many of us have wrestled with that question because the ideas of God's love and God's justice seem mutually exclusive, like both of them can't be true at the same time. In fact, there's a growing swath of evangelicals that have concluded that they are, in fact, mutually exclusive, and thus that the classical understandings of God's justice and wrath are, quote, misguided and toxic, to quote a recent book-length treatment on the subject. God's judgment is unloving and out of character for him, and those who hold on to the doctrine are just mean-spirited, hateful people. So gratitude for God's justice, not exactly. It's more like embarrassment or even disgust. That's one of the responses. Then there's the temptation to dilute God's justice, to just water it down so that it's not really relevant to me. So, you know, the world might be that bad, but thankfully I'm not, and so I don't have to worry about God's justice. We water it down. We make it weaker so it doesn't apply. Uh, and so gratitude may be grateful at least that I don't have to worry about God's judgment, even though maybe these other people who are worse than me do. So relief, I don't know. Uh, finally, there is for some, finally, there's a lot of different reactions, but the last one I'm going to draw out here, there is for some a temptation to deny God's justice. Not because we don't think it's real or appropriate or that we don't deserve it, but because we know we do deserve it and we cannot bear the thought of facing it. And so we have to deny it and we can't even go there. We spend our days cycling back and forth between a, a self-dependent pride where I've got it all together and then into a self-loathing despair because the truth has been made known and I really don't have it all together. And we cycle back and forth, trying to keep up the act for God so that he won't judge us, or at least trying to keep up the act for everybody else. Sometimes it's easier to fear the judgment of people than it is the judgment of God, and so we're performing for one another. But all the while, we know what's going on in our hearts and that there is no way we deserve to be in the presence of a holy God who can't even look on sin. 
and so we pray and pretend that God's justice isn't real because if it is, we are undone, and we just can't go there. We can't go there. We're not grateful. We're terrified of God's justice. And underneath each of these common responses lies a categorical misunderstanding of who God is and who we are. Underneath each one of them, there's a fundamental confusion of identity. And it's revealed for us in the psalmist's plea, in, plea to God in verse 20. Look again at the last line. What's the problem here? Let the nations know they are but men. They are mere humans. Let them know that they are not God. The problem that causes us to view God's justice ungratefully is really, essentially, a misappropriation of chapter 8 from last week, Psalm 8. Last week we saw the majesty of God in heaven and the gracious calling he has given humanity, frail, weak humanity, to be the chief display of his glory on the earth. He has crowned them with glory and honor as his royal representatives and called them to rule and subdue this earth on his behalf, filling it with his glory, spreading his fame, and bringing all creation under his rule and blessing. Beautiful calling for mankind. That's what we were made to do. But the crown went to our head, and we reversed the order so that we, essentially, are the ones in heaven, and God exists to make much of us, to do our bidding. We get God and man confused. We think, so we become big and God becomes small. We devalue his holiness. We make him less than what he is. So God is not so worthy or so valuable or so set apart from creation that he has any right or need to defend his name and rule from those who oppose and offend it. Evil is not that big a deal if God is not infinitely set apart from it. So we make him less than he is. If he's not that holy, sin's not that much of an offense. And an unholy God has no need to deal justly with evil in the world. In fact, he lacks, he lacks the character and the ability to do so. So only when we devalue God's holiness are we able to dismiss his justice as unnecessary or denigrated as unloving or dilute it as irrelevant or deny it, pretending that it's not real. But the reality is, and we know this, when we look at this psalm, when we look at the book of Psalms in general, when we look at the world we live in, and when we look at the face of Christ, no sin really is that sinful. This world really is that broken and messed up. We live in a broken world where we are frail and helpless as people, where evil eats away at our lives and our relationships like gangrene, where offenses are committed not just against each other, but against God, where we are actually part of the problem in our own sin and where we're powerless to do anything about it. We, as humans, are unable to do what is right and make right what is wrong. We cannot establish justice. 
That's actually the pervading description of God's people in Psalms 9 and 10, this picture of weakness, of frailty. In, uh, they, they're described as the lowly or poor or afflicted six times in these two psalms, as oppressed, helpless, orphans two times each, as needy and innocent. We are mere humans, poor in spirit, stained by sin, and incapable of dealing with injustice in our world, let alone in our own hearts. That's the picture. So we need a God who has the character and the ability to deal justly with evil, to make right what is wrong in this fallen world. We need a holy God of justice. And according to Psalm 9, that is precisely the kind of God our God is, for which we should be grateful. We have a God who can deal justly with evil, who can do what is right and make right what is wrong. And there are two ways that this psalm highlights that fact, that the fact that we can trust God to be our just judge. First is that he has the character to establish justice. God has the character to establish justice. Take a look again at verses 7 to 10. And how they describe God's rule from heaven. So his throne, his sovereign rule, has been established for the purpose of justice. You established your throne for judgment or justice. It's the same Hebrew word translated either justice or judgment there. And by the way, the word judgment is not intrinsically bad. We often think that. We hear the word judgment, that's always bad. But it simply means to establish justice, to render a judgment or to give a verdict. And that verdict can either be positive or negative. So when you go before the court for a judgment, you can either be vindicated or condemned, declared not guilty or guilty. Uh, you can either... Um, yeah, vindicated or condemned. And so in verse 8, when he says that he will judge the world in righteousness, it's not saying he's going to condemn the world, but rather he will issue a righteous judgment on the world, either condemnation or vindication, but it'll be the right one. He's a righteous judge. He makes the right decisions. He will deal justly with this world. And so rendering a judgment is not necessarily a negative thing, and we'll see that here. The question is whether or not the judge has the character to do the right thing. It is possible to have an unjust judge, a judge who does not give righteous verdicts. A judge can do that. So what kind of judge is God? What kind of judge is God? Well, if we look at the words used to describe his judging activity in 7 and 8, we get a very clear answer. He judges the world with righteousness. He does what is right. He judges the peoples with uprightness. There's integrity. There is uh, justice in how he establishes justice. He does what is right. Again, verse 4. You've sat on your throne for judgment. You've sat on your throne judging righteously. In those descriptions of God's establishment of justice, he does so righteously. As Psalm 92 says, there is no unrighteousness in him. It's not even possible for God to give a wrong verdict. It's not even possible. You can't say that about any other judge. You can't say that about any other person who's weighing in on something and trying to wrestle it out and make sense of it all, that 
that, they are, that it's impossible for them to be unrighteous. That's only true of our God. He's the only one who is fully able to do what is right and make right what is wrong. And so we can trust him. We can trust him. When we don't know what's going on, we can trust God to sort it out. He's a righteous judge. In fact, verse 10 calls us to this very kind of trust. Those who know your name will trust you. When you know God by name, when you know his reputation as the righteous judge, you'll trust him. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. We can trust our God to deal justly. And as a just and holy God, we should expect him to deal justly. He has to deal justly with evil in this world. Not just the sins committed horizontally against one another, but also with the sins committed against him. This is why exalting God's love at the expense of his justice doesn't solve the uh, tension that we alluded to earlier, the question of how can a loving God judge people and send them to hell. There's a great, tempta a great temptation to say, well, well, he can't, and so I guess that love wins, and justice loses. Love prevails over justice. There's a great temptation to go there. But again, this is a man-centered approach to the question. It's reversing the order of Psalm 8. Nobody wants to dispense with justice when they themselves are the victims of injustice. So nobody wants to give up that right to defend their own name when it is slandered, or to defend their own stuff, or their own desires, or to want uh, restitution when those things are deprived. We want justice when it applies to us. But when we limit, God's, when we limit justice to, just to this horizontal plane, what we're doing, what we're saying is that I don't think God should have those same rights that I want for myself. I don't think God should have the right to defend his name or his stuff or his desires. And so we see sin not ultimately as an offense against an infinitely holy God, and so we want more rights for ourselves than we want God to have for himself. And we take this man-centered approach at this question of justice. But God is a God of justice who exalts both his love and his justice perfectly. They are not in tension with each other. They are both true, and he does so ultimately in the cross. And we'll look at that in a few minutes. But God is a God of justice at all levels, at every level. And that is good news for us. That's something that we can be grateful for, that he is not going to allow evil to go unchecked. He will deal justly. We can trust him to do it. He has the character to do so. And secondly... As the psalm highlights reasons that we can trust God as our judge, he has the ability to do so. So he has the character, he has the ability to establish justice as well. Which again, sometimes means condemning, and sometimes means vindicating, or delivering, or rescuing. And throughout the scriptures, those are really two sides of the same coin of God's interaction with humanity. Judgment and salvation. Condemnation and and vindication. So it's in judging God's enemies that he actually delivers and rescues his people. Think of the plagues in the Exodus story. The very plagues that brought death and judgment on Egypt were the means by which God brought freedom and deliverance to his people. So these things work hand in hand, and ultimately they meet at the cross. Again, 
we're going there. But before we do that, I want us to see that we can see both of those elements to God's justice right here in this psalm. So first, God is able to condemn evil and unrighteousness. He has the ability to do it. And in Psalm 9, there's both an active and a passive element to God's justice. So on the one hand, the psalmist gives testimony to God's active judgment in verses 3 to 6. Judgment is something that God does to his enemies. Look at verse 5. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken the enemy. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. So God is active in judgment. But then there's also a passive side to it, where judgment is also something God's enemies do to themselves. Look at verse 15. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they've hidden. Part of God's judgment is the evil of people backfiring on themselves. So there's an active and there's a passive side to God's judgment in terms of condemnation. And again, if we're honest, there's a temptation to think, this is a little too harsh. I mean, this kind of, their memory will be blotted out forever. That's, you know, what happened to loving your enemies? How do we, how do we understand what's going on here in terms of both exalting love and justice? And I want to be very sensitive here. But I think that this temptation to think it's too harsh comes ultimately from a, from a failure to appreciate both the holiness of God and the gravity of evil. So, if God is infinitely holy, then an offense against his throne is an infinite offense, punishable infinitely. It's the highest form of treason. God is holy. And if evil in this world really is that evil, rape, violence, exploitation, Abuse, pride, greed, theft, murder, betrayal. We think that we look at that evil and we think that vengeance of some sort is inappropriate. Then that just shows that we've clearly never had those kinds of things happen to us. To say that God's judgment is inappropriate in the face of that kind of evil is actually quite an insensitive posture to take to the victims of that injustice. But Deuteronomy 32 says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We need a God who's able to stop evil and condemn it. And it's, this is interesting. It's only when we believe in God's final justice that we're actually free to love our enemies. Think about that for a minute. Tim Keller reflects on the writings of a Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf, who's himself witnessed the kind of genocide that we only read about in the newspapers. And he says this, if I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I'm sure there's a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain. So trusting that God is going to deal with the injustice, whether in the cross or in the final judgment, is what frees me to actually love my enemies. Because I don't have to deal with that. I don't have to exact my vengeance. I can leave that to God. And 
love my enemies, and pray for those who persecute me. So God is able to condemn evil, to avenge the wrongs in this world, and we need him to do that. He's able to make right what is wrong by stopping it and punishing it, and also, here's the other side of the coin, by rescuing it and redeeming it. That's the other side of the judgment coin, God's salvation. Notice how you see that right in the middle of the description of God's judgment on the wicked in verses 3 to 6. Verse 4, here, so here's God judging the wicked. Verse 4, for you have upheld my right and my cause. God's judgment against the wicked is his salvation for his people. He's upholding the right and cause of his people by putting down his enemies. God delivers us, and we need him to do that. Listen to the cry for deliverance in verse 13. O Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me from the gates of death. Well, how's God going to have mercy? He's going to put the enemies down and rescue his people. In verse 9, he is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Verse 12, for he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. God defends those who have no one else to defend them and who are unable to defend himself. That's part of God's justice as well. So, verse 17, the wicked return to the grave, all nations that forget God. But verse 18, the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted ever perish. God will be faithful to establish justice, condemning and saving his people, saving the innocent. Now, that raises a massive question. Who in this psalm is innocent? Who in this room is innocent? If we step back from the psalm and, and, and look at the larger biblical landscape, we know that God's people, Israel, were not only weak, they were rebellious themselves, just as rebellious as the nations oppressing them. As Isaiah 1 puts it, the ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They've forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. So, who is the innocent? And in case we're tempted to dilute God's justice and water it down so it doesn't apply to us, yeah, naughty Israel, who glad we're not like them, uh, listen to Paul's indictment of all humanity in Romans 3. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, so people of uh, ethnic heritage of Israel and non-ethnic heritage of Israel, we've already made the charge that both of them are alike under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have, to beget, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So, how does a holy God exalt both his justice and his love in dealing justly with evil in the world when none of us are innocent? The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul continues in Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He just established that. And are justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, something that is going to bear the weight of his holy anger against sin through faith in his blood. Listen here. Listen to this. He did this to demonstrate his justice. What was God doing with Christ on the cross? He was demonstrating his justice because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. All of those people who believed and clinged to God, yet Christ did not come. Their sins had not yet been fully dealt with, so God's demonstrating his justice against sin by pouring them out on Jesus there. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In the cross of Jesus, God's justice is exalted because sin is fully dealt with. It is poured out on Christ in our place, all the holy anger of God, for the rebellious treason of Israel and for the rebellious treason of our own hearts. God deals justly with sin, and yet in the cross he is able to, at the same time, deal lovingly and mercifully with sinners to cancel the debt of sin because it's been paid in full by his eternal son. And in fact, if you want to see God's love, 1 John 4.10 says, look at the cross where God dealt justly with our sin. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You want to see love? Look at the cross where justice and mercy are both beautifully and perfectly exalted together. And it's through faith, through trusting in Christ, putting the full weight of our hope in him, that we have the freedom and joy and gratitude to receive a not guilty verdict, to be cleared of our charges of sin to be forgiven and freed. Without faith, without personally trusting in Christ, that condemnation remains on ourselves. But there is one who took it. And through faith in him, we can be free. That's what Paul says later in Romans, in chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Hear that. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The verdict is not guilty. Even though you don't deserve it, Christ bore it. You've been set free. So we cannot dilute God's justice as though we're not guilty, because we are. And yet we need not deny God's justice out of fear. There is a sufficient solution in Christ. We do not have to live in fear, in fear of what this world will do in its evil against us, or in fear of what will happen because of the evil in our own hearts. Evil does not win. Sin and brokenness and sickness and disease and all the hell of this meantime does not win. God wins. God's justice wins. God's love wins because Jesus wins. And all who place their faith in him. So though that victory, confident victory, 
sometimes, maybe more often than not, seems pretty far off as the sin of this world presses against us, as the broken fabric of creation shows itself in the decay of sickness and injury and disaster. Because we are confident that God wins in both justice and love, we can cry out with the psalmist in verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. In other words, let your sovereign reign be made known, even in this meantime, by establishing your justice. Or as Jesus puts it, let your kingdom come. Deliver us from evil and forgive us our debts. That's the prayer of Psalm 9 there. We can trust our God to deal justly with evil because he has done so through the cross and resurrection of Christ, and so we can be grateful. Verse 10, Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, O Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Let's pray together. What a sweet and gracious promise, God. What a sweet hope. Fill our hearts with gratitude, Lord, because you, you alone are able to do what is right in this world and to make right what is wrong. And God, we feel the wrongs. We feel them. We feel the wrongs in our hearts, the careless words that we utter under our breath, the scorn we feel when we don't get our way, the hurt from being betrayed, dismissed, denied. God, we feel the, the weight of this fallen world. We feel it in, in the sins committed against us as well as the sins we commit. And yet, God, we thank you that we can trust you to make that right, to forgive us, to deal with evil. And God, may we cling to your cross in gratitude that that is how you do it. May Jesus be all our hope and all our joy. We ask it in his name.